I do think that one of the secrets of success is really being customer-centric from the top of the organization right down to the person that cleans the dustbins. I, I like to share this anecdote of uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy, mm. when he went to NASA in Cape Canaveral. And he saw this guy with a mop in the corner cleaning. He goes up to this guy and he says, what do you do, sir, in NASA? And the cleaner responds to him, Mr. President, my job here is to put the man on the moon. And I think that that's, that's the key, right? Everyone in the organization is focused on the task and the task is really to execute the mission. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Paul Turn. In the day, I work a pretty normal job as a doctor in Singapore. But in my spare time, I interview successful people, mainly in Asia, with interesting career paths, hobbies, or side projects. I trace their stories right back to their humble beginnings, and I ask, what do these unconventional journeys teach us? And can we similarly be more imaginative in what we do? Welcome to the Alternative CV Podcast. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Season 2 of the Alternative CV Podcast. Thank you so much for your patience during this COVID season when I had to take a break from podcasting to focus on COVID-related clinical work. But I am so excited to be back with season two starting from this episode. Well, today's guest has heaps of experience in the medtech scene. He is the Group Chief Executive Officer of Advanced MedTech Holdings, which is a global player in urology devices and services, and it has a whopping revenue of 200 million US dollars a year. I am so excited to welcome onto the show none other than Mr. Abel Ang. Previously, Abel has also served as a senior advisor to the CEO of, of Great Batch Inc., which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange, as well as the president of Asia Pacific for Hillrom, which is also another 3 billion revenue medical devices company in the US. Mr. Abel Ang was once responsible for leading, developing, and implementing the strategy to expand Hillrom's presence in the Asia Pacific markets. And in addition to these roles as CEO of Advanced MedTech, Abel has also been adjunct associate professor at the Nanyang Business School in Singapore, as well as Waseda University in Japan, two large universities in which he teaches their respective MBA programs. And interestingly enough, he also contributes a monthly newspaper column to the Straits Times, which is Singapore's largest newspaper. Abel has vast experience and a wealth of knowledge in developing and commercializing medical device technologies built up over years and years of work in this field. And this was pretty much 40 minutes of solid education in strategic vision for anybody interested in starting or leading a medtech company, or more generally, leading a company as a CEO. So nominally, our focus was on bringing a medtech product to the market. What I really gained from my conversation with Abel was about making a compelling product, going the extra mile to serve the company, and also really examining the fundamentals of your capabilities and your company's abilities when thinking about whether to take a product to market yourself or licensing the technology to another company and partnering with them to take the product to market. Along the way, we've also touched on some of Abel's experiences leading some of the largest companies in the US. So as usual, there's so much to get into in this episode. And without further ado, I really hope you'll enjoy my conversation and learn something from this episode with Abel Ang, the CEO of Advanced MedTech. Mr. Abel Ang, welcome to the show. Yeah, don't call me Mr. Abel Ang. Mr. Abel Ang is, uh, Mr. Ang is my father. Yeah, everyone calls me Abel. Abel, welcome to the show. (laughs) 
<laughs> so by way of introduction, Abel, you're currently the group CEO of Advanced MedTech. Can you explain a little bit about what Advanced MedTech does? Sure. Advanced MedTech is a medical device company that is really active around the world. We have a revenue of about 200 million US dollars primarily driven in the area of medical devices. We have a substantial urology business, mm -hmm. and uh, that's probably 85 to 90% of the group revenue. And the rest of it that we have comes from things like contract manufacturing of medical devices and other ancillary manufacturing services. Mm. So we are really a very international company, a thousand people around the world, about 300 people in the US, 300 people in Europe, and the rest of the people are in Japan, uh, Singapore, and Asia. So that gives you a bit of a sense of the size of the group and what we are up to. Yeah, well, and you are group CEO of this. So I think this is a term which is very foreign to most people. So what, what actually does a group CEO do? Like, um, what's the day in the life of Abel, for example? So I, I like to say this. The, we don't take very seriously the titles that people have in the group. Mm. I like to say that the group CEO is like the mascot in the sense that people that are really touching the customer and doing the real work, so to speak, are out in the field. I am based in Singapore. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, I can't travel. Usually, I spend anything up to about 150 days on the road. Wow. Every year. The previous normal pre-pandemic year, I travel about 500,000 air miles. So for the last five to six months, I've been kind of based here in Singapore mm. and haven't done a lot of traveling. So the challenge there is less than 1% of our group sales actually originate here in Singapore. 99% of our sales are out in the field. And at this point of time, I really feel like a mascot because I'm not actually located in the market where most of our sales are done. So mm. what I do is I primarily spend my time cheerleading and talking to my fellow colleagues who are actually in the market and talking to the customers and trying to make sure that we are doing the right things and taking the right decisions in terms of where the business is going and how the business is being driven. I think that that's what we try and do as a group. We don't spend a lot of time saying, I'm a CEO, you are a general manager, you are the chief financial officer, mm. because those are just titles. I think that as a company, we are very much focused on getting the real work done. And if it means getting the real work done is picking up a medical device or a consumable or accessory and dropping it off at the customers. I really don't care. As long as the customer wants it, I don't care what your title is. Mm. Right? You can be the chief cleaning lady for that matter, right? If a customer needs it and it needs to be sent for a patient and a patient needs it, then, you know, let's just get it done. Mm. Yeah. So how's that been different? Like, do you, do you enjoy it? Like now that you're based in Singapore or, and not traveling so much? Well, I... I think it's kind of pros and cons. I think that on the business side, it's a bit of a struggle because mm -hmm. all of our business, right? 99% of our business is generated outside of Singapore. Mm -hmm. So yes, we can meet a couple of customers in Singapore. That's mm -hmm. great. And of course we do meet them. But I think that the vast majority of our business is done in places, in countries, in locations that I can't access right now. So it's very difficult to get a ground level feel Right, I because I, yeah. I spend a lot of my 150 days on the road talking to our customers, being in the operating rooms, mm. right, watching surgeries take place with our devices being used and getting ideas, improvements and feedback on how we can continue to drive 
the innovation in our products and to make sure that we ultimately do what we always say, which is be customer centric and serve the customers better. And so, so that's a struggle because we are not where the real action is. So, so that kind of using your own senses, like eyes and ears, yourself is very, very important to you. Yeah, I like to say that we are a 200 million US dollar startup. <laughs> right? yeah. And I think that in my expectations are very simple. I think that if you are in a startup, the CEO does everything, mm. right? The, the CEO quotes, the CEO does uh, customer service, the CEO does sales. Mm. And I don't see why, again, like I said uh, earlier, I don't see why that should be any different in any other company. Just because you have a group CEO title doesn't give you a pass in terms of getting the real work done. So that's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great advice, yeah. And, and it helps you to stay hungry all the time as well as a company, the company culture. Yeah, I, I think that let's not forget where value is created. Mm. I think in many instances, as people get more senior in organizations, and this is not unique to a company. I think I see this in uh, government. I see this in all sorts of what I call uh, multi-level organizations where as people become more senior in their leadership journeys, they feel that the things that they did when they were younger or less senior becomes less important. Mm. And I think that there is an inherent, what I call leadership fallacy there. And that results in leaders being out of touch with what is happening in the field. And when they're out of touch with what is happening in the field, then I think that that's when leaders cannot really lead. Yeah. So on that point, let's go back to the start right um, at the start of your journey I mean you're, you're now group CEO of this 200 million dollar company in medtech but did you always know that you were going to get into medtech or did you happen to stumble upon it what's the, what's the story there yeah the I didn't always know that I was going to get into medtech mm. in fact I didn't always know that I would ever be in healthcare right so unlike you you've probably wanted to be a doctor for some time and you, you know, train in Cambridge and so on. I think for me, the coming into healthcare was something of a serendipitous journey. Mm. What happened was that after I graduated from university, from college, I joined the Economic Development Board in Singapore. And the first thing that I did there was actually very much connected to what I studied in school, which is I, I studied about the infocoms and technology center, uh, sector. I actually learned in college how to do the bureaucracy to get a satellite launched. Oh, right? wow. So, so stuff like that. And uh, this is before the days of broadband, before the, the days of wireless and so on. So at that time, any kind of internet connectivity wasn't even really known. The only way you could get your messages or get content streamed anywhere in the world was via satellites. Mm. So that's what I studied. And when I joined the EDB, this was uh, in the late 90s, that's what I primarily did, which is I worked with the you know, satellite uh, broadcasting companies around the world. I worked with uh, content companies around the world. At that time, this was the, really the early days of the internet. People like Yahoo were still in startup mode. Google was still uh, be, no being way. birthed yeah. in Stanford. Yeah. And uh, that's what I did. So... But after doing that for a couple of years, I realized that there was a lot of opportunity in the world of healthcare. And the, if one seeks to have an impact, 
in terms of making a difference, I think that health is a great way to make a difference. Not to say you cannot make a difference in other sectors, but when you make an impact in health, you have a, it's a very meaningful impact because you can see people who have a disease or an ailment and uh, whether through a pharmaceutical or through good clinical care or through a medical device, you can really make a difference in that person's life. And that was kind of the early inkling on what made it interesting to get into the world of healthcare. So what, what changed that for you? Like, how do you come to that realization that healthcare was one, a field of opportunity? And I suppose, because it's more immediately obvious, like, how, how do you come to the realization that that's the meaningful part you know, of your job that you wanted to do? So again, back at the EDB, after doing the infocoms and technology sector or the ICT sector for a couple of years, I was given the opportunity to uh, go overseas and to run one of our overseas centers for the EDB that's in Germany. And while I was there, that was when Singapore embarked in this whole biomedical wave mm. under the leadership of Mr. Philip Yeo. And he was a very inspiring individual. I had an opportunity, actually many opportunities to work very closely with him to attract investment to the country and also to talk to really the leading lights of healthcare in, the, in Europe at that time where I was based. Mm. And I think that that was really the probably most important key stimulus factor that got me interested in healthcare and eventually led me down the path. Mm. And then at some point in time, you went to the US to, to work first as the senior advisor, the CEO of Great Batch, and then subsequently as the president for Asia Pacific for Hillrom. Can you describe what you did there? Uh, in those two roles? Did you, you stepped away from EDB, I suppose, by that sure. time? So actually, the EDB and healthcare and I guess my own life story kind of is very much intertwined. So I actually got to the US as a direct intervention from, from Mr. Yo. Oh, so wow. I, he was my boss at the Economic Development Board. Yeah. And he sat me down one day and he said to me, you will have a great career here in the EDB if you wanted it. But I really think that you should go to the private sector because I think that if, if nothing at all, it will give you a set of very diverse experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, he arranged for me to go to this US public listed company called Hillrom. It's now one of the largest medtech companies in the world. And I was literally presented with an offer letter, with an expatriate assignment and all the other good stuff while I was still in the EDB without actually having looked for a job. It was just wow. dropped in my lap. I thought about it for like 30 seconds, <laughs> right? Because it really wasn't much of a question of whether or not you, you go in the sense that if, number one, your boss in government tells you to go to the private sector and the job offer is already lined up, you don't have to discuss your compensation. You don't have to discuss who pays for your lodging. Mm. I think it's pretty easy decision to make. Uh, and this would include also expatriating my kids. I had two kids at the time or have two kids, my wife. I think it was, uh, it was very fortuitous and we were very blessed to be able to do that. Mm. So we took the assignment, went there. The quid pro quo that he had actually negotiated with this company was that within two years, I would be given the option. I wasn't, it wasn't mandatory, but I would be given the option to return to the EDB. And she was in my US contract. Wow. So just an option, no it obligation. It was an option, no obligation. So, so his point was that, oh, you know, within two, three years, if we need you at the EDB, we reserve the right to recall you from 
this uh, private company, mm. right? Because of the nature of the way this offer was, uh, opportunity was created in the first place. So after two to three years in the US, nobody called. So I just carried on. So I just stayed in the US and continued my medical device journey there. And it was a fun journey, really fun in the sense that I started out working as the head of business development at m and for Hillrom for everywhere outside the US. That was my first opportunity and had a chance to do a bunch of acquisitions, which I had never done before. I had EDB, I had talked about it. I had learned about it. I had learned what to do, but never had a chance to operationalize it. Mm. When I went out to Hillrom, we did those acquisitions, five of them, and uh, they were really good learning experiences and also very good for the business. That allowed me then to have an opportunity to go on to run one of their global businesses because it was very close to some of the work that I did in the M&A space. So I ran a business which was about half a billion US dollars in size. And after doing that for a little while, was then given the opportunity to be the chief technology officer of the company. Did that for a couple of years and then came back to Singapore and ran Asia Pacific as the president of Asia Pac for Hillrom. So it was a series of jobs and it wasn't really uh, what I call career planning in the traditional way of career planning. It was really one job led to another job. Focusing on doing a good job in the assignment that I had at that time and not thinking so much around where am I going, how am I going, much more focused on just doing a good job. Yeah, but this is, a, this is a great theme that I see in a lot of the guests who come on this podcast in that you kind of have some semblance of a goal of where you want to get to. Like, for example, in your case, you knew that MedTech was something which was both a, a great opportunity as well as, a, as useful to other people. And then after that, just, you know, taking opportunities, putting one foot in front of the other and then and doing the best job as you can at each stage. And yeah, I, I think uh, for a lot of the listeners in the, in the show, they often look at the at these so-called successful people and think that, oh, you know, I can't get there. Like, that's not me. But then they don't see the, all the little steps that got somebody there and the opportunities that built upon one, one another. Yeah. Yeah. What lessons do you learn in, uh, during that phase of your life that you felt were really instrumental that you brought back to Singapore with you? The, probably the most important lesson that I learned when I was in the US really was to just get the job done. I think that one thing that we see about Americans, and I hate to stereotype, but I really see this attribute very strongly in, in, in US companies, is they're very focused on getting the job done. And for them, once you say, look, I want to hit a sales target, there is no question of whether or not what you need to do to hit the sales target, right? And I think that therein, there's a lot of opportunity for Asian companies, for Singapore companies, for Singapore organizations to, to rally around that in the sense that in order to hit the sales target, you have to be extremely customer-centric. And I do think that one of the secrets of success is really being customer-centric from the top of the organization right down to the person that cleans the dustbins. I, I like to share this anecdote of uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy, mm. when he went to NASA in Cape Canaveral. And he saw this guy with a mop in the corner 
cleaning. He goes up to this guy and he says, what do you do, sir, in NASA? And the cleaner responds to him, Mr. President, my job here is to put the man on the moon. And I think that that's, that's the key, right? Everyone in the organization is focused on the task and the task is really to execute the mission. And I think that in that respect, that my experience in the US is that US companies are extremely focused on, on getting things done. And that's part of the reason why we've seen a lot of the dynamism that we've seen in the US economy. Do you have a personal example of uh, what it means to kind of like get the job done? I think that probably the, 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 the most recent example, uh, at least in the company, is that we had a product that had been launched by a previous management team. So I've only been in this company for several years. Mm. And we had launched a product previous to me coming to the company. And there was a, a part of the product that was not exactly what the customer wanted. And because it was not exactly what the customer wanted, what resulted from there was that we had a lot of customers we were, which were unhappy. And uh, I think that one thing that I was very inspired by my team is that we had a very senior leader in the company who basically put up her hand, and this is a lady that ran the project, and she basically did not do anything for a period of two years. She moved from Singapore to one of our global sites and just did not do anything for two years to solve this one customer satisfaction issue for us as a company. Wow. Yeah. So, so, and you know, she, she, she was so passionate about it she managed to convince back, borrowed, and steal resources for the project. Mm. And she, she got the job done. And I think that in that respect, that, that I think for me exhibits this whole get the job done kind of mentality and thinking. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose that speaks volumes to you as well, you know, seeing all this. No, actually, I think it speaks volumes to the person that did it. Yeah. Because I didn't do it. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, in the startup world, there's, there's this kind of topic about like, there's this concept of like living in the future that some people have kind of know the future and then they are trying to bring the future back to the present. So do you have a sense that having worked in the US where I suppose the economy, the medtech uh, market is bigger and the companies are perhaps more advanced that you find some, in some ways that when you've come from the US back to Singapore, you have, you have come glimpse of the future and you're bringing it back to Singapore and and I suppose to follow on to that question is, what do you think Singapore can do to, to kind of get there? So I, I think that this whole concept of the US is ahead of Singapore is probably a bit of what I call an archaic concept today. Mm. I think that we live in a highly interconnected world. And I think that anything that happens anywhere in the world is immediately discoverable. And you should always just as well assume that it's known. Mm. So I don't see this whole concept of, oh, US is more advanced than Singapore any longer. Maybe 25 years ago when I started my career, you could kind of say that because people were less connected. Mm. There wasn't so much social media. There wasn't a 24-hour news cycle. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is how that is perhaps important is I think that here in Singapore, we need to get out of this whole thinking that 
other people are better than us. I think that there is always what I call a bit of an inferiority complex. That we are in Singapore, we are a small market, we are far away from the large markets, so we cannot do world-class work. I'm mm. a very strong believer that there is world-class research happening in Singapore. I'm very strong believer that the people that we train and that we put out into the marketplace here are as good as anyone in the world. And I think that we just need maybe hopefully in a couple of years for people to catch up with that kind of thinking. I think that there is a bit of that whole idolization mentality. People look and they say, oh, there's a Google or there is a Medtronic or there is a Baxter, you know, and they've mm. been around for some years and we cannot do the same here in Singapore. I actually beg to differ. I, I've said this before and I will continue to maintain it. I think that we stand at the cusp of a golden age of medical devices in Singapore. Mm. I think if nothing at all, the COVID-19 pandemic should have taught us that we can develop some of the very best products in the world and we can do it fast and we can take care of some of our own healthcare needs, but not just our own healthcare needs, but also those of our neighbors and even those further afield than our neighbors as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's, let's take a right turn. I want to come to this uh, subsequently, but since you mentioned it, so one of the things which we try to do on this podcast is to, as, I, as we were talking about earlier, give kind of like a masterclass to, to people who are, to our listeners. So essentially, from your experience, I, and I'm, I'll play the fool and just uh, ask you questions that I've always kind of, like, I've always wondered about, and then you can give your, your, your opinion on them. So, you know, you, you were talking about countries like Singapore uh, being able to sell to the world and how that has leveled the playing field rather. So I really wanted to, to talk to you about how to bring a medtech product to a market. So for example, if, if I've developed a product, I've tested it, it's, it's not just a prototype, it's actually something which is more fleshed out, fully formed and, and really deployable. I've researched to back it up and now it's time to start selling it. I think the first thing that I'd like to ask is, firstly, do, do, sh should one partner with an industry player that's really established to manufacture and distribute that or should you try to go it alone by forming a startup? So I think... The main intent of that question is how do you take a product which is already approved mm. and bring it to market? And for me, what you do really depends on how much confidence you have and what your ultimate capabilities are. I do think that there are people here in Singapore that are the real deal and they can take a product all the way from concept to market to commercialization and distribution and you know take it all the way to the end i think we forget that companies like medtronic they are one of the biggest medical device companies in the world but mm. ed barken the founder of medtronic was a startup mm. right so so he's the real deal he actually took medtronic and laid the foundation and people like bill george omar ishrock and others have come and have brought it forward so I do think that here in Singapore, again, we will have entrepreneurs that will be able to do the whole thing. I also do think that there are some people who probably will need to partner, which is what you suggested, who will have to work with an industry player and work with them to expand the distribution channels and basically lay in place the foundation to be able to take an approved product to the market and to get it to what I call a threshold of impact 
What would you mean by a threshold of impact? A threshold of impact, very simple. For me, it does not matter to have the very best headphone in the world, but the number of people using the headphone is five. Mm. Your two parents, your sister, brother, and your neighbor from across the street, right? Then for me, there is no impact. It can be the very best headphone in the world, but you have zero impact. Mm. Much better to have maybe a not so brilliant, not so perfect headphone, but everybody in the world has one, like Beats, mm. right? So I think that the idea here really is know yourself, know, know what you're strong at, what you're weak at. If you feel that you have everything and you are the real deal, generally those are few and far between, then do it. Go all the way, do it, all, do it alone. But if you don't think that you quite have everything, then partner. And there's no shame in partnering, right? I think that mm. the tragedy that I've seen, bear in mind that we have, what, 400 startup companies here in Singapore in the medical device space. And many of them have approved products, but many of them have an impact of five, right? Mm. They have like two brothers, two sisters, and, you know, their neighbor from across the street. That's the total sum of the impact that they have. And I would suggest that for some of these companies, it would make sense for them to partner. There are perhaps a small minority of them that are playing it absolutely right and they're executing the startup to market playbook perfectly and they will become unicorns in their own right. And that's great. And I'm happy for them. What we do in Advanced MedTech is we seek to look for these types of founders and we back them because mm. that's the kind of impact that we want to see, not just for ourselves, but we also want to see from founders that come from this region. Sorry, I can't let this go. So what is your definition of the startup to market playbook? Yeah, the startup to market playbook is, is actually very well described in, in many of the, what I call origin stories of, you can take a medical device company. I mentioned Medtronic earlier with people like Ed Bakken. Hmm. But that one, it took a long time, right? Maybe more than almost a hundred years for hmm. Ed, Medtronic to get to the size that it is today. But there are other startup playbooks that I think uh, we have seen that haven't taken 100 years. So if you look at Google as an example, they have only been around for less than 30 years, right? And I think that that is the opportunity. I think that if I were an entrepreneur today, if I'm a med tech startup company today, I would ask myself, how do I get into the digital health space, right? Look, the beauty of digital health is what is the product? There is no physical product, right? And if you are in digital health, I, we, we just saw in the last 10 days, the largest digital health deal of all time, tw uh, almost $20 billion. Mm. It's a merger between Teladoc and Livongo. Mm. And they have just merged and uh, it's a, what I call a digital health juggernaut. So my, my point basically here is find a playbook that works for you Obviously, the playbook is what is the customer need that you are addressing? How do you address that customer need? And how do you distribute into that customer need such that you have impact? So within our company, we have a very simple phrase. It's called CECMIS. So everything that we touch, whether it's in a content space, digital health space, or anything for that matter, needs to meet the first three criteria, which is it needs to be compelling. Because if you don't, you're not compelling, you don't get attention, mm. right? You need to be engaging because after you get the attention, you need to have engagement. 
And then the third thing is you need to be convincing. You need to be able to convince the customer of a point of view that your product works, that your product is better than somebody else and blah, blah, blah. Then we have the second part of the acronym, which is MIS, which is Massive Impact and Massive Scale. Ultimately, if we can do the CEC well, we will have the massive impact and the massive scale. So I'm not dodging the question on the playbook, but I think that the question is very broad because there are really many playbooks that are out there. There's no, anybody who comes on this show and says, oh, there is one playbook and it's my playbook. I think that that is probably nonsense. I think that one should have the humility to say, okay, how do we provide the advice that allows people to go out and discover what is the playbook that is relevant mm. for themselves and how to execute to market. Yeah, so the principles are there, which is a compelling product, something convincing, and then and engaging. And then that's it's sort of product first, really. And then after that, then focusing on massive impact, massive scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Can you lay out the pros and cons of like partnering or versus going it alone? Just to give people a framework of sure. how you should think about it. So I think that the going alone one is simple, right? I think that ultimately as a founder or as a company leader, going it alone, once you choose to go it alone, you've decided that you're going to do everything, which is why I said starting point needs to be, you need to know yourself, mm. right? And I think that, you know, whether you read the Sun Tzu Art or War or the Bible or any of the books of wisdom, first thing is know yourself and know what you can do. So that one I think is simple. I think that the partnering one, I personally believe that we live in an age where partnering needs to be a core capability. Core capability for the company. And I would put us in that category. We are not a company, Advanced Med Tech, where we have everything to go it alone, which is the reason why we have launched communities like the EuroX community. Because we are basically putting up our hand and saying, look, we as a $200 million startup, do not have all the attributes to go it alone. Mm. What we want to do is signal out to the world, signal out to external parties that we are prepared to collaborate and we are prepared to build a DNA of collaboration. And you know that is perhaps something that's worth doing from a partnering standpoint. Mm. Obviously, partnering is a bit of a dance. You need to have two people or two parties who are interested in partnering with each other. Each one brings a unique set of attributes and then you have a one plus one equals to three kind of output as a result. But that is perhaps some guidance in terms of how partnering can be done. Hmm. So I suppose just what I'm learning from all this is that essentially it's, uh, it comes down to how much to your type of product and how much confidence you have in yourself to be able to, to complete the, the final few steps. And if you don't see yourself being able to do that yourself, then look for somebody who can compliment you in that way, hence partnering. Yeah. yeah, okay. If you were to go at yourself, what does distribution look like, especially since you ha- uh, have that privileged standpoint of having distributed a lot of products? Like, I suppose as a, as a starting point, is, is it generally like one touch point? Is it, are they usually gatekeepers or, or, or is it a number of people who you need to reach out to in parallel? Yeah, I think that the, the starting point should be first thing when you're looking at distribution and, and sales because we are now moving to out of partnering into the sales aspect or the realm of sales. I think that the starting point is first understand what does the sales cycle look like okay. for that space that you're in. Mm. So whether you are selling a pacemaker or whether you're selling a stent 
mm. or whether you're selling an X-ray or imaging machine, the playbook looks different. So the pacemaker is an implantable. As an implantable, you have a very different sales cycle because there is a lot of skill required to actually do the implant. The physicians need to be trained. In many instances, the sales representative also scrubs into the surgery in order to mm. facilitate and support the doctor as the implant is being put into place. So that's for the implant world. The second area is when you're selling a stand, that's a consumable. You don't need the sales representative to actually scrub into surgery to sell a stand because the stand is, you know, you've got maybe a hundred of them in your supply cabinet. Mm. They bring them out, all the different sizes and shapes and the franchise and so on. And the doctor basically says, I need this. It needs to be in this color and I'm going to put it into wear, right? Mm. So that's a very easy, what I call a sale. And then the third one is in the, what I call capital equipment space, imaging machines, lithotriptors, hospital beds, they are in this area. This is a very complex sale. Because in capital equipment, usually it's a lot of money and you have many stakeholders and you need to go in and you have to work with all the various stakeholders in order to facilitate that sale to happen. But I would say across the three, and there are other business models naturally, for the digital, there's another business model. Mm. But across all of the business models, my number one suggestion for a company that's trying to excel in sales is go out and invest in the most capable sales leader that you can afford. Most capable sales leader. What I see very often here in Singapore or in Asian medical device companies is they spend a lot of money in product development, but when it comes time to sell the product, they go out and buy the cheapest salesperson. Mm. And I think that therein lies a big issue, right? Because the impact of a product is not just from the product development and the R&D, the impact of the product is in the commercialization phase. Yeah. So if you are going to spend a million dollars on developing the product, I think you would do yourself a great disservice if your sales leader only makes $50,000 a year, right? I would suggest that your, if you have a, spend a million dollars in product development, your sales leader should be a sizable fraction of what the cost per year should be a sizable fraction of what the cost of development for the product needs to look like. For the simple reason that that sales leader is the person that is actually going to bring the product in the last mile. Mm -hmm. And I think that therein lies a part of the business, which I think many of our device companies here in this region neglect. tend to neglect or maybe they just for because they spent all the money in the product development, they have no money left for sales, mm. right? I think that there needs to be more of a equitable distribution in terms of the spending in those respects. Then let's talk about markets, right? Because come back to our point about interconnectedness and then and, and, and the fact that you, there are different regulatory requirements, but also you want to consider size of market. What, what markets would you say one should approach straight away? Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the most important thing for, for, from a market standpoint is to figure out which market that you have a unique advantage in. Okay. Right? So, I, I, and I'll explain that. The, very often, when I see device companies, they say, oh, we need to get a US FDA because the US is the largest medical device market in the world. Mm. Unfortunately, 
for many of the companies that do that, they fail to realize that because the US is the largest medical device market in the world, it is also the most competitive medical device market in the world, right? Hmm. And it all depends on the product that you have and your competitive advantages. And I think that you need to take a very sober view of that. I think too often our founders and some of our medical device or our healthcare leaders here are drinking their own Kool-Aid. They think that they are best, but they are actually not. Mm. And I think that that's uh, something that you need to consider deeply. So I'll give you another uh, counterpoint to that. Yes, the US is the most competitive medical device market in the world, but maybe Singapore is a viable market for the medical device that you are trying to develop. I give you a, we, I, one of our portfolio companies actually was able to go from zero to about a $10 million sales revenue only here in Singapore. Mm. And they did that because they realized that there was nobody serving this segment of the market here in Singapore. And they basically took the entire market for this product in Singapore, right? So yes, Singapore is a small fraction of the global market for this, this product category. But if you have the entire market in Singapore, then obviously you can make a decent living from that. Mm. So it's not always what you see is what you get. I think that sometimes you need to think a little bit and there is some uncommon advice to be had or some uncommon strategies that you can execute that play to your differentiated advantages and allow you to win. That's really good advice. Okay, the, the last kind of question I wanted to ask along this series is, is something quite different from what we we're talking about, but it was kind of related to what we, what we had discussed earlier in your, you know, your capacity as a CEO of Advanced MedTech and then your earlier experiences in Hillroom. So I wanted to ask you about acquisitions. Like uh, you've been part of, as you were saying, you know, in Hillroom, five acquisitions. And then as in Advanced MedTech as well, you partner with companies, you acquire them and then and, and do M&As. What do you look for in, a, in an acquisition target? Like what, what makes something attractive to you? So in Advanced MedTech over the last four years, we've done about 20 transactions. So 20, whether it's acquisitions, investments, divestments, we've done 20 such transactions in the last four or five years. Hmm. So that kind of works out to a transaction every three months. Okay. So the pace uh, is pretty high. We have probably the largest M&A team in Singapore. Mm -hmm. I have a team of seven people who do nothing but M&A all day long and they live and breathe this. So what do we look for? Very simple. Number one, we look at to see whether or not we have an alignment in terms of values with the people that we are trying to work with. People. People. Okay. Right? Because ultimately, it's it, we are in a people business. Mm. Whether it's an investment, it's a product, it's a technology, it all boils down to people. And we generally, as a rule, do not like to work with people who do not share our values. Mm. I think that that's very important. And our values are very simple. We believe in being very customer-centric in our innovation. We believe in being very urgent in our collaboration. So whatever we do, we do it fast. And we believe in showing authentic leadership in the quality and accountability and basically all aspects of the business. So that's essentially what we look for. If the partner that we are working with has the values, then we check the box and then we go to the next part of the discussion, which is ultimately, does this product or this technology fit in with the overall strategy that we have as a company? Mm. So as a company, we have 
actually already, we are now on year six of a 10 year strategic plan. Okay. And we don't have what I call strategy ADD. When I first came to a company six years ago, we laid out a strategy plan. Mm. Every year, we just look at how we are performing. We just did a mid-year where we looked at the five-year results and we exceeded our entire strategic plan. And then we re-upped the whole thing and then we now have a 10-year strategic plan. So we look at how this fits into our strategic plan. And basically, we decide, okay, where does this fit in? And how does this take us to where we are trying to go? And at a broad level, our strategic plan is we really want to make a customer impact for patients and caregivers in the world of healthcare, in the, in specifically in the fields of urology and fields adjacent to urology, right? So that's what we try and do as a business, right? So if you look at the assets that we have, we are very, very strong in the kidney stone area today. That's mm. where we grew up. That's where a lot of our business happened to be in, right? From there, we actually have moved into adjacency in the area of dialysis. Again, it's in the kidney, right? We are basically providing kidney-related dialysis, mm. right? And then increasingly, we have moved to the organ near the kidney, which is in the respiratory area, which is the lung, right? And I think by all accounts, if you look at it, as a doctor, Paul, I'm sure you know that, mm. you know, these three fields are completely different, right? You have mm. urology, nephrology, and pulmonology, yeah, right? different. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, if you look at it, we do think that there is some relevance because one skill set that we have at a group that cuts across all this is really that manufacturing capability. We are able to manufacture at scale and we are able to do it in a very fast fashion. As an example, recently we launched a ventilator mm -hmm. together with a partner company and we took it all the way from concept to a rollout product in three months. Right, that's a HSA approval. And we even put a twist on it where it has a telehealth functionality where it connects to the internet and you can actually have bi-directional connectivity. We can monitor patients and you know, we can basically do a, what you call a van operation center, not a network operation center where we can manage a thousand of these vans with two people in a, in a room with a lot of screens. So mm. these are things that I think that what we try and do is take a few things and do it as well as we can. And I think that that's what we are trying to essentially do as a business in terms of executing our strategy. And if I were to twist it the other way, if I were a founder, essentially what I picked up from that is that it's about focusing again on, on back to what you were saying earlier about CEC and then, and then in terms of the acquisition part of it, I suppose it would be the alignment with the company, both personally as people and then also in terms of your product and the company's uh, strategic aims mm -hmm. yeah able that this is this has been great actually I, I know we're kind of brushing up against the time which you wanted to to go off if you have another 10 or 15 minutes i want to talk about some more fun stuff relating to your hobbies sure, uh, sure. let's uh, sure. maybe run for another five more minutes sure yeah okay I suppose uh, the last thing which I wanted to talk about was 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 really your the fact that you apart from doing all this you write a uh, a monthly column for for the Straits Times which is Singapore's newspaper. What have you learned from these other hobbies that you that that you that you do? How has that helped you in in if if I could call this CEO business your your main job? How has your hobbies impacted that part of your life? Yeah, I I think that it all starts with what do you want to achieve, right? 
we talked about this at the start of the interview mm. uh, in terms of impact. So I, I think one of the things that I've been very fortunate to have in my life is I have had the opportunity to decide that I want to have an impact. And one of the areas that I've decided to have an impact is in the area of healthcare. Mm. Another area that I've decided that I want to have an impact is in the area of education. So I, I teach as well mm. in, in, in some universities. And I think that the third area of impact was really when the national paper approached me and said, hey, why don't you do a column for us? Right. I was a little bit surprised, to be mm -hmm. honest, because uh, the person that had this column is a household name in Singapore. Mm. And I was surprised that they would, they would seek me out and ask me for, for, to do this. And I deliberated on it and I realized, look, if ultimately I want to have an impact in healthcare, in education, maybe being able to document some of my own journey and to share it in a column would maybe help other people who are still also trying to sort out what they're trying to figure out in their lives, in their families, mm -hmm. and so on. So I think that's kind of how uh, it works out. I think that ultimately, it, the three of them bring about a sort of balance. Right? I think we can't forget that I think that it's important to have balance in the sense that you cannot work all day, mm -hmm. right? Or you cannot do your hobbies all day either, mm -hmm. right? There's such a thing as too much of a good thing. So yep. why don't you do a little bit of everything? And it's similar to you. You have a medical career, which is going on swimmingly, and you also run a podcast. And I think that there's a lot to be said about pursuing your passion. And that's what we try and give to our kids as well. Just pursue our passions. That's a great place to end. Thank you very much, Abel. Thanks for your wise advice. And I've definitely learned a lot from, from today. Okay. Great. Thanks, Paul. Any last words? Thanks for your attention. No, thank you. Thank you. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Catalyst, which is a clinician-focused startup incubator and co-working space in Singapore. To find out more about Catalyst, visit their website at thecatalyst.com.sg. Special thanks to Dr. Reina Damawan and the team at Catalyst for their help in making this episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, do consider subscribing if you haven't done so already or sharing this episode with your friends. I'd love for more people to benefit from this. If you've got something to say, you can always reach out to me at poll, that's P-A-U-L, at alternativecv.fm. Leave a review, get in touch, pick up the conversation, anything you want to talk about. You can also find show notes about everything that we've talked about and any references we made at alternativecv.fm. See you next week. <laughs>